Hey, I stand before you today as a recent graduate of the Golden Bear Physical Therapy. I graduated Thursday. Yeah, you know, I, I did pretty well. They gave me a lot of high fives and hugs. So what happened is years ago, when I used to play sports and things, I you know, injured my neck and my shoulders and my back, but then they didn't really bother me, and then they kind of did, and then they didn't, and I, no big deal. And then finally, in January, I started having these spasms, and I was really having trouble you know, getting around. And so I went into physical therapy, and they taught me all this stuff that I can do, so now I am the physical specimen you see before you. So <laughs> how about that, huh? Yeah, there you go. Thank you. One person. Thanks a lot, Jessica. I love you, too. Um, so what would happen, what would happen after all this work and all the things that I learned if I just said I was going to live the way I did before I got this therapy? What would happen to me? I'd go right back, right? I'd re-injure myself. I might even have a new injuries. I'd probably come back in worse shape than I went into originally. I'd be a mess all over again. Now, what would happen if I did, if I followed instructions? I mean, they give me this little sheet of paper, and they give me another one. I've got about a binder full. It takes me about two hours a day to do my exercises, but uh, not quite that long. But if I do those things, what happens to me? I get, I'm getting better, right? I'm going to hold on at least. I'm going to stay at the same place. What if I don't watch for the signs that something's wrong? In other words, I'm feeling tired, or I'm feeling in pain, what do I do at that time? If I push through the pain, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be in trouble, right? This is really hard for me because I grew up you know, playing sports and that whole psychology of sports, that whole culture where I was always taught you push through the pain. There's a new lesson. I don't know when it starts. When does it start, Chuck? There's a new lesson that starts when you say, listen to your body. I don't know when that starts. But yes, 40, thank you, Jody. Around 40, listen to your body. So up to 40, push through the pain. After 40, listen to your body. Okay, because otherwise you're going to be a mess. Now, if I keep doing everything I'm supposed to do and I make a lifestyle out of it, and that's my lifestyle for the next 5, 10 years, what's going to happen? I, I'm going to be a lot better. In fact, they, they may put a poster up here in this town of me saying... Go to our therapy. Look what it's done for this man, right? Probably not. But I'm going to get a lot better. Now, here's the deal. I've talked to you about physical therapy so far. And the rest of today, we're going to talk about spiritual therapy. But it's the same thing. How do we respond to spiritual therapy is how do we respond to God's message to us, to what Jesus has to say to us? So last week, the whole stage was set for where we're at today. And what we see is that Jesus... Uh, had a man who was both blind and deaf, and he cast a demon out of that man. And the people, they've been seeing Jesus do miracles after miracles now for over two years. And even still, they're questioning him. And some people are saying, that's not a good enough sign for us. It needs to be bigger than that. And the religious leaders are getting people all excited and upset, and their people are saying, you know what, he's, he's doing his miracles, his casting out of demons and so forth, by Satan, by the devil. That's where he gets his power, because they don't like his message always. And so they've got to try to say, no, it's not real. And next thing you know, it's coming from the devil. So Jesus says, it doesn't come from the devil. Why would the devil cast out demons? He wants to put them in. That doesn't make any sense. But furthermore, he says, I can basically kick the devil's tail anytime I want. So that's not the issue here. The issue here is that you're doubting me. And that all that I've done for you isn't good enough. 
And at that point, Jesus draws a line in the sand. And that gets us into our new sermon series that we started last week. He draws a proverbial line in the sand and he says to them, are you for me or are you against me? What's it going to be? There's no neutral ground. It's not like you say, well, I love all the religions and all the philosophies and all the people. I don't hurt anybody's feelings. Are you for me or are you against me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe it? Are you going to follow me or aren't you? And then he launches into this whole series on that that we're going to be talking about in different you know, variations. But today he talks specifically of four examples. He gives us four examples of how people respond to his message. And he kind of goes negative, positive, negative, positive. The first two relate more to demonism. The next two relate more to signs. But they're, they're in general, they're very much what I was just telling you. So we're going to jump into those today. We're going to take a look at them. You ready? Turn to Luke chapter 11. Um, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through 36. And the question we have before us is, how do we respond to Jesus' message? And the first thing we're going to see is that we can live like we did before. Verses 24 through 26. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Now, an evil spirit would be a demon. That's just another name. We've been talking about demons, and now he's talking about an evil spirit, which it would be a demon. So it always gets really quiet when we talk about demons. We don't like demons. We don't like the devil, and that's how it should be. Jesus is here giving an illustration. It's not a historic, documented narrative, but I believe it's based on fact. And what basically he's saying is, as we talked a little bit about last week, we talked about this whole idea of people will come under the control of the devil. And when the devil controls them through demons, we usually say that they're possessed or they have possession in their lives. And now what's happening here is Jesus is chasing this demon out of this man and he's no longer possessed. Now he has an opportunity to respond correctly and surrender his life to Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes to live inside him, we can say, as we did last week, greater is he who is in me than he was in the world. I'm not protected. I'm not going to be possessed anymore. The, the demons can still oppress me. They can still get footholds in my life. They can still tempt me to do wrong things. But now God lives inside of me. But what does this man do? He goes back to living the way he was before. So the demon comes back around. And this time he says, I think I'll take some others with me so we'll be a little stronger and more protected. And the guy's life is worse than it was the first time. Now we're talking about demonism here, but it relates very much to other areas in our life. For example, remember a few weeks ago I told you the story of Bridget? And she was the young lady that we prayed over her, and she had spinal meningitis, and she was actually dying and, and was on her deathbed, and she rallied suddenly and came back, and it was an incredible experience. But afterwards, Bridget recognized it was supernatural what had happened. She was grateful for it. She thanked me, and she said she was grateful that God did that for her, but then she just went on living the way she always had. And I suspect that if I saw Bridget again today, she'd be a mess. Unless something's changed, 
because she never made the changes she needed to make. She never turned to God. And so things actually got worse for her. I mean, I've seen that happen so many times through the years, especially when I, when I used to work in recovery ministry. I'd have people come to me and their lives, they'd say, boy, you know, I was doing so well when I was walking with the Lord. In fact, every time I come back to church and I read my Bible and I pray and I have other brothers and sisters to hold me accountable and be my friends and encourage me and we're involved in ministry and I, I, I do really well. And they'd say, notice the key word was every time because there were multiple times. And each time they'd come back, they were worse than the last time because they weren't staying with it. So the message really for us is threefold. It's one, to receive Christ, two, to return to Christ, or three, to remain in Christ. So receiving Christ, how do you do that? A, you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. B, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And C, you choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. And if you do that, if you're interested in that, please come and talk to us. That's the most powerful thing that you can do. If you have done that, but you've fallen away from God, maybe this is your first day back in church. I don't know what your situation is. And you come back and say, maybe I should get back in. It's time to get back in. You, you need to return back into church because we need each other to take care of each other. And once we're in, we need to remain. Now, summer is a treacherous time for followers of Christ. Do you know that? You need to go on vacation. I, it's a good thing. Go take vacation and have fun. But here's what happens. We go on vacation. We come back. The school year starts. Things get crazy. And we start having excuses for not coming to church. Say, boy, we haven't been for a while. And then a year passes. <laughs> I haven't been in church for a year. And what that means is that you haven't had others to hold you accountable. You haven't been reading your Bibles. You haven't been praying. You aren't really walking with God. And by the time you get back, it's like, you know, you threw your neck and back out all over again. And therapy needs to start all over. And so we need to be careful that we don't let it slip that way. We need one another. And we need to respond correctly. Or if we don't, we're going to be worse off than we were before. So that's the first example Jesus gives. That's a negative one. The next one's a positive one. How do we respond to Jesus' message? He says, follow his instructions. Verses 24, 27 through 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this woman is kind of like, you know, woman power, you know, good job, your mom, she did a great job, she, she should be proud of herself, she raised you, that's awesome. And Jesus is not saying that he had a great mom, he's just saying what's more important is that people follow the word of God or God's message, that's really what's most important. And who else would say that? Mary, right? Remember Mary back early on in Luke? first chapter, and Jesus, then she was told she was going to have Jesus as her, as her child, and she says, I'm your servant. Let it be. Be it done to me as you would do. She obeys. That's what this is all about, obedience. Do what God tells you to do, and that's when you experience his blessings in your life. When you follow God and do what he wants, then you experience his joy and his fulfillment in how you live. We've got a dog. It's actually my daughter's dog, and, and her name is Maggie. 
She's a cute little King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, rather famous in some parts of uh, this community. She actually has a Facebook page. Um, and she's, a, she's an interesting little thing, kind of a quirky little personality. We got her when we were living in a townhouse in San Diego, not thinking we would move into country in, uh, in Oakdale. And so she's adjusted. You know, Maggie's, Maggie's doing all right. She she's actually enjoys the outdoors, the great outdoors. And she's a smart dog. If she wants to tell us she's going to do her business, we used to have a, a, a little bell, and she would ring the bell. Time to go out now. Now she'll come to us and kind of woof, woof. We come over and she wags her tail and looks at us and we know it's time to go out. She wants to get pat, she'll sat down and we'll pat her and we'll love her and we'll hug on her. And she does all these different things. You know, if, if we can clean her ears or, you know, clean, give her a bath or whatever, and she'll do whatever because she knows she'll get treats, right? She loves treats. She'll do almost anything for treats and love and for attention. And the dog is weird. You know, I take her off her leash and she comes back and licks the leash and cries until I put the leash on her. I've never known a dog that wants to be on her leash. Talk about separation anxiety, right? I don't know what it is, but that's how she is, okay? My dog is exceptionally well-behaved until people come to our home, <laughs> right? But listen, animals, why is it that animals are so motivated by treats and by pats and strokes and love and attention? And there is a sense in which we should be motivated by the fact that when we do what God tells us to do, he blesses us. Why doesn't that motivate us more? Why doesn't it motivate us to know that God is with us, that our conscience can be clean when we're walking with God? We can be at peace with God and we can have a sense of his presence. We can have a better clarity of mind and know what he's doing in our life and what our gifts are and abilities are and how we line up with him and what we should be doing with our lives. We can have deep, meaningful relationships with other people. So why don't we stay there? It doesn't really make any sense, does it? That's where we should want to be all the time. It all really starts with the things we talked about earlier, but specifically here he's saying, follow my message do what I tell you to do. I don't know if you do that regularly, but I hope everybody here at least, at the very least, reads a passage of Scripture every day, maybe takes a verse and thinks about it throughout the day in your busy schedule. If you need help on that, we haven't mentioned this for a while, but on our back table we have a little booklet called The Daily Bread. And I'd encourage you to take that. Just read one of those every day and meditate on what it says to get yourself started. Because that's where we start and say, am I following God today? What can I do to grow in my relationship with him? It becomes fun and it's exciting. And you see God working in your life and it can be very encouraging. So I'd encourage you to do that. Now, the next one is the negative one again. And this is probably the one that's, I'd say, really the heart of today's message, uh, the heaviest part of it. And that is to ignore his signs. So we move more into the signs here. It's verses 29 through 32, and there's a parallel passage. Matthew in chapter 12, verses 39 through 42. Chapter 12, verses 39 through 42 of Matthew tells us the same story. So we're going to pull from it a little bit to pull out some more you know, details that aren't in here. So let's take a look at what he says. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up on the judgment, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Everybody wants to think that their generation has it together. But I probably, I, I think we're probably safe to say that there's really never been a great generation. Because generations are made up of people who are sinful people. And I guess you could probably say every generation is a wicked generation. This one is highlighted because they're at the point where Jesus is here. You would expect it to come together. But I sometimes wonder if we were to change places with them, if we would be any different. It's a wake-up call for us to say, am I going to really follow God? Are we going to really follow God as a church and as a people? And Jesus is increasing now uh, his intensity. And he's saying, you've got signs around here that should cause you to pay attention. And if you continue going down this road without paying attention to those signs, you're going to re-injure yourself. You're going to get in bad shape. So pay attention to the signs. I have done all these miracles for you. You're not paying attention to them. And now only one more is going to come, the sign of Jonah. Now, in this passage, he emphasizes who Jonah was, the fact that Jonah had come. And let's understand the setting. Jonah was a singular Jewish prophet who went to the land of Assyria, to the great capital of Nineveh with over 100,000 people, one Jewish man with all these Gentiles or non-Jews. He walks in and he says, I got a message for you from God. You need to repent and turn to him. And overwhelmingly, the people turned to God. And it was an amazing miracle, and Assyria soon would become the most powerful empire on earth. Jesus is saying, I also am a Jewish prophet, and I'm speaking to you who are Jewish people and who know the Bible prophecies and teachings. Why aren't you listening to me? You see what he's saying there? And then he goes ahead and he gives another example, and he gives the example of the queen of the south, and Matthew says that this is the queen of Sheba. So we believe Sheba was somewhere in southwest Arabia, which still would have been a long distance at that time. It was a powerful mercantile kingdom from about 900 to 450 B.C. That means that the queen was one of the most powerful people in the world and probably the most powerful woman in the world. And she comes to kind of talk shop with Solomon, get to know him, find out about him. She heard he has a lot of wisdom. And next thing she knows, she hears God's message through him, and she turns to God. And usually a person of that power isn't going to you know, have the humility to do that. And so Jesus turns around again and he says, she turned on this message and she had less information than you have. You have me standing here before you. And, and she listened to Solomon. Why aren't you listening to me? Now in Matthew, Jesus goes even a little bit further, he gives a little bit more of a detail. Matthew records more details. He says that he actually defines the sign of Solomon, uh, sign of Jonah. And he says, even as Jonah was in a great fish, this is in verse 40, chapter 12, verse 40 of Matthew, even though Jonah was in a great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. What's he referring to? This is a veiled prophecy, really. Now, 
this is a hard one. I'm glad you're all sitting, um, most of you, because I'm going to break one to you that may, may hurt. Jonah wasn't in a whale. Okay? Sorry about that. I don't know where that got started. He wasn't, but he was in a great fish. Other people were too. Do you know we have records, even in recent history, of sailors falling overboard that have been inside large fish? And usually they get caught in them and they have like an air pocket, you know, as they get their head in there. And the fish usually is choking on them and vomits them out. It's not a real pretty scene. And that's what happens with Jonah. Jonah's is still a miraculous story, but it was, there is some situations that have happened. But what an awful thing, you know. So he was presumed dead. And next thing he shows up on the seashore and he's alive. And now what happens with Jesus? Jesus is dead in the tomb. And now he's alive. Now you talk about the three days and three nights, and some people do have problems with that. They say three days and three nights. Jesus wasn't in full three days and three nights. When we approach other people in history, we need to try to think like they did and try to understand things the way they did. We need to understand their language. We need to understand their colloquialisms, their little sayings that they had. Uh, they talk different than us. Now, when I was a kid, I had a hard time because I was always told to be good, but then somewhere along the line, they started saying that bad was good. So I never knew if I was bad or good, right? You know, I mean, it's kind of, remember how we did that? Bad is good. And we change things around like that all the time. And they had their sayings 2,000 years ago. So we learned a couple weeks ago that they would not say, oh, it happened about a week ago. They would say it happened eight days ago. And everybody would understand, oh, that must have been within the last seven days. That was their saying. And so it was similar for this. You know, they had a saying, and all the scholars I've read have said that they would say, when they said three days and three nights, they meant essentially parts of three days and three nights. So the first, it could be part of the first day and part of the second day. It had to be the middle day, but it had to be, you know, within that ballpark, okay? And that's what we understood happened to Jesus, according to the record, both in the Bible and in the early writers, and so Jesus would, it would be, it all ties in. Jesus is talking about himself being in the tomb and coming out. And that is the sign. Isn't that amazing? He's saying in advance, you, you want to see another sign? I'll show you the sign. The sign will be that I will die and I'll come back to life. And then we'll see if you believe. But I know you, most of you aren't going to believe. And when the judgment day comes, the Ninevites and Sheba, the queen of Sheba, they're going to go to heaven and they're going to play a role in condemning you because you're going to hell because you've rejected me. You reject me, I reject you. Are you for me or are you against me? So Jesus' words are getting pretty stiff here. Now, we say, well, how does that relate to us today? And I'll tell you what people will say. They will say, if I was there at that time, I would have believed. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Or if Jesus was here now, I would believe. Let's understand, if you were there at that time, if you were there at that time with thousands of people thronging around Jesus, what are the chances that you would have ever met him? What, if you did, about the best you're going to get out of is a handshake. What are the chances that you are going to get a whole long message all for yourself? Most of the people, they didn't hear all the messages. They'd hear maybe parts of them, and other things would be passed on to them. You may not even see a miracle. It wasn't like, you know, they had television cameras all over the place. 
you may not have seen him on the cross, and probably less than a thousand people actually saw him after he rose from the grave, which is an incredible number. But he's not going to show himself to absolutely everybody. It doesn't work that way. Today, we actually have more information than they had at that time. You think about it. We have four people that were close to him who have recorded his story, and they, it, they collaborate without even knowing each other what each other was writing for the most part. They all collaborate amazingly. The whole Bible comes together. All the prophecies of the past are fulfilled. We talked about this earlier in church. We talked about the historicity that supports the writing of the Bible. We talked about the archaeological evidence that supports the writing of the Bible and the things that the Bible teaches. All the evidence is there. The evidence is overwhelming for Jesus' death and resurrection. Historically, you, you can't deny it. We have that before us. We also have before us, we can see how nations that have followed God have risen and fallen based on how they follow the Lord. And we've seen people's lives transformed. We're going to go see a friend of ours um, who came to our college ministry years ago. This guy was so lost, he didn't know where he was going, and life was really confusing for him. And he turned to the Lord. In the last 30 years or so, he's been serving on international ministries on college campuses in Japan and now in Australia. Can't understand a thing he says these days with that accent. But I don't think he hasn't picked it up yet. We're looking forward to seeing him. But it's amazing how God changed his life. And you see life's changed around you. So you have the evidence. You have so much before you. And there are people, do you realize there are people today that are coming to Jesus in droves? in other countries that don't have any of that information. All they know is that they see people before them that love them unconditionally and who have a message about a God who died on the cross and rose from the grave so that they can have a relationship with him and live with him forever in heaven and they're turning to him. We are without excuse. We of all people should believe with all the information that we have. If you do believe, Pray for others that don't. Pray for other countries. Pray for other leaders that they might change, like the Ninevites and like the Queen of Sheba. And you might say, well, that, you know, that doesn't really happen very often. Not in our time. You know, it actually has happened in our time for many of us. Because Russia was under communism for over 70 years, and how many people were praying for that nation to turn to God? And it happened in our lifetime. The walls came down, and hundreds if not thousands of Christians came into that country to share Christ and others were already waiting for them. And many have turned to the Lord in our lifetime. Why not still pray for Russia? Why not pray for their Prime Minister Vladimir Putin? Or pray in Ukraine. You know Ukraine, the president of Ukraine, uh, Petro Poroshenko, uh, called the Chocolate King. He was a successful businessman. He's often seen in pictures with a crucifix very actively involved in his Eastern Orthodox Church and appears to be a sincere follower of Christ. He's got his hands full. Are you praying for him? Pray for world events. You never know what God's going to do. Okay, last one for us. We've talked about how we respond to Jesus' message, and the last one is a positive one. Let his light shine in your life. Verses 33 through 36. No one, light, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. 
But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. So you don't light a lamp and then turn it out or cover it, right? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is not ashamed of his message. He's shining it for us to see. How are we going to respond to it? And here's the key is understanding that your eyes take it in. Your eyes take in the light. Your eyes take in the scenery, so to speak. And when you're walking with God, when you're responding correctly, you're taking it in and it becomes a way of your life. But when your eyes are bad and you're not responding to God, your eyes are cloudy. Do you ever notice that, that sometimes you're explaining something to somebody, especially when it's spiritual, and they just, it's almost like they can't get it. Um, they're just resisting. You ever notice for a kid, like when you tell a kid, you say, look at me. You know, when a kid's disobeying, you say, now look at me. And they'll do this. They'll do, Duh. have you ever seen that? Anybody who's had a kid has seen that. They do that. No, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. You know, open your eyes. No, you know, and that's, and that's how a lot of us live our lives. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. And God says, open your eyes and take it in. Take it in. Make it part of you. Everything you do, your lifestyle, day in, day out, this is how you live. Reading your Bible, praying, going to church, building relationships with others, reaching out to them. Take it in. And what will happen is it will soon start to radiate through you. And you yourself will become a light. And you yourself will become part of the message. Cool picture that he gives us that we need to be that kind of a message. And the only command in this whole passage, and all these passages, is found in verse 35, where he says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Don't take in the darkness, take in the light, take in Jesus, and let him shine then through you. It's interesting this week, I don't know how many of you uh, noticed this, but one of my childhood heroes passed away. Joe, you know where I'm going with this, huh? Kenny, the snake stabler, uh, Oakland Raiders, took him to their first Super Bowl in 1977. And it was interesting reading about Stabler. He was, he was quite a character. I remember watching him play. I mean, I remember being at the game and seeing him play, and he was, I'd never seen anybody more clever than he was. He always seemed to find a way out of a jam. I actually, I actually saw a game one time against the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the, they blew the whistle, but he was being chased out of bounds by L.C. Greenwood, uh, who looked like a giant panther. He was just so quick. Like a, he was like a cat, his movements. He was so quick and so powerful. And he chased him out of bounds. And the referee didn't see it. They were looking the other way. And he kept chasing him. And he wasn't going to stop. And he had him. And just as he had him, Stabler kind of looked both ways. And then he stepped out of the way at the last minute. And um, Greenwood ran into a, 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 actually a, a big... Um, bench that was, thank you, a bench that was there. And he ran into a bench. He starts rolling on the bench. And Stabler was just like that. He just always, last minute, he knew what to do. He was clutch. And so they said about him, they said, this guy was silver and black. He was the pride of the silver and black. Nobody wore a uniform of the Oakland Raiders more like Kenny Stabler. He was on the edge, big hearted. Um, He loved his teammates and he was clutch. If you're a Oakland Raider, that's what you should be like. That's who we are. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, don't we say that about other teams too, right? Whatever your favorite team is, we say that. Um, are you, I'm your shirt on today. 
Dallas Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, you know, but we could say that about the Giants or the Oakland A's. We can say that about teams, but we say that also, don't we, about our favorite bands or our favorite TV series or our favorite school. Or if it, and we wear, we wear their, their, you know, T-shirts, right? And we go around and that's, we identify with these people and we become their representatives. Have you ever thought about that? we become their representatives. And when we die, and I see this sometimes in obituaries, it's really interesting. It'll say about a person, it'll say, this guy was a big 49er fan. This lady never missed a Coldplay concert. This guy could tell you everything you want to know about the Lord of the Rings. This girl went to UCLA, and nobody was more proud of where they graduated from. And then some were tucked in there to say, and then the church they went to, they really liked their church. And sometimes they don't even say that. Not that all these things are wrong, but really when we get down to it, next to what Jesus has to teach, we're talking about darkness, aren't we? Are we really shining Jesus' light? Are we being known as followers of Christ first? Or are we being known for the other things that we try to represent? And people will say, look, I want to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody. And my faith might offend somebody. Guess what? If I say I'm an Oakland Raiders fan, there's people in this room that are offended. <laughs> I can guarantee you. Right? And, and, and you, know, you know what I'm saying? What, I, I can take any position I want. I can almost anything I say I'm for, there's going to be somebody here who's against it and is going to be offended. But all those things are immaterial. They don't matter. They're meaningless. But my faith in Christ is something that I can give somebody for eternity. So why are we ashamed of it? Why don't we let our lights shine? Now, obviously, we do it appropriately, but we should let them shine. And as we've talked about this before, we, we've identified, we said you need to identify, and hopefully you have, the 8 to 15 people God has sovereignly and supernaturally placed in your life. Who are they? Who are the people you can start with? Are you light to them? Do they see the difference in your life? Do they see how you live, and they see how you love them unconditionally? And do they look at you and say, boy, this is a person whose light shining in the darkness. A few Weeks ago, I gave an illustration of a song by one of my favorite Christian groups, Third Day. And so then I went back and listened to their CD because I hadn't listened to them for a long time. And I found another one. They had this song where they sing. You know, there's so many of these songs that have messages, obviously. Um, but they have a song where they're singing, I live in the darkness, my light shines on. Like the old story, really. But I live in the darkness, my light shines on. I thought, we live in the darkness. And our light needs to shine on. That's how we respond to what God would have us do. Now, we started off talking about physical therapy. If I had to choose between physical health or spiritual health, I know which I would choose. I would choose the spiritual health because no matter how hard I try, no matter how much money I put into it, no matter what I do, this body is going to fall apart and I'm going to die. I can't stop that. But spiritually, I can walk with God for eternity. So that's what's most important to me. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for who you are.
thank you that you are the light in the midst of the darkness and that we can be lights too. Uh, beacons for people to come to know you and grow in their relationship with you and become part of your kingdom and to experience true spiritual health. Lord, I pray that as we examine these things that we would consider what it may just be one or two things that might hit us that will help us to walk more closely with you. Pray that you would help us each to grow in our relationship with you and with one another. And if those if anybody here doesn't know you, I pray that they'd come to know you this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.